Good morning, and happy Lord's Day, which comes around every week on the first first day of the week. just happens to coincide, as it does every year, once a year, with Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and those who have mothers and who will enjoy Mother's Day today, which hopefully will be all of us in one way or another. My sermon has nothing to do with motherhood. It's not a Mother's Day sermon. But it does have everything to do with happiness, so there will be a tie-in with it in that sense. Um, And I'm going to begin the sermon with an acknowledgement. Uh, Several weeks back when uh, Cliff asked if I would be willing to fill in with the sermon this week, I said I'd be happy to fill in because I already had in my mind, the idea of what I wanted to, uh, to preach on. And I wasn't necessarily accepting or expecting to get an opportunity anytime soon, but when it came up, I said, sure, I'll do it. And it, it, I knew at least what, the, what it was going to be predicated upon, and that is uh, God's infinite nature, his infinite capacities and attributes, and specifically what that means for our relationship with him and our encouragement and joy in the face of life's disappointments and sufferings and trials, and also the hope that we have an eternal life in heaven. This is something I've been thinking about for um, quite some time, actually. And I'm, you know, I was kind of excited at the opportunity to get to share some of those thoughts with you. And that meant I had to prepare a sermon which means organizing those, these thoughts, making sure, first of all, that they're biblical and true and are supported by Scripture, and that my understanding and interpretation of those Scriptures that I was using to form these thoughts were at least in compliance with the historical understanding that the church had of these Scriptures. Now, this is something easy for us to do nowadays. We're not cavemen. We have the Internet. We don't need a vast library in a, you know, in a wing of our house, we can just go to uh, do a simple web search. So that's what I did. And one of the first um, links that I clicked on was an article with a title, When the Perfect Comes, The Ever-Increasing Joy of Heaven, First, Chronic, or first Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. And as I began to read this rather lengthy article, I realized that the author had written down the entirety of the sermon that I was planning. And this was kind of unsettling. First of all, I'd, I'd never, I mean, he, he's not an unknown person. He has several books, you know, to his credit, and has served with the Gospel Coalition, and, and, and serves with a very large church, and generally well-known, but I had never heard of him before. And I just stumbled across this, uh, this article. And so it was kind of unsettling, thinking, well, I mean, I'm planning out this sermon, and somebody's already written the whole thing out. But I decided to just go with it, and that's why I'm beginning with an acknowledgement and crediting him with, you know, Dr. Sam Storms, Ph.D. I am giving him full credit with uh, what, what we're about to um, hear and consider today. Uh, that's why in your notes, in the bulletin, you'll see a link with another QR code, which all the kids are using these, these days, 
which will direct you to that article. And I strongly, strongly encourage you to um, read that article. And when you do, you're going to find out that most of what I'm going to be saying today is right there. And a lot of it's going to be verbatim. So that is why I'm compelled to acknowledge that he wrote it first. I'm simply going to use the row that he hoed, and I'm not going to replow the whole field. He's a much better expositor than I am. He's much more practiced at it, and his furrows are very straight. So that is why I direct you there. Speaking of the notes that you have in your bulletin, you'll notice it says worksheet on it. This is a worksheet. You don't necessarily have to take notes while I'm doing them, although if you, or while I'm um, talking up here, but if you want to take notes, feel free to, but this is a worksheet for you to do later on so that after you listen to my sermon and or read the article, you can uh, hit the books and write some stuff down, your own thoughts. Um, my, my hope is that you'll begin your own meditation upon God's infinite nature, his promise of eternal life with him and the glory that will be when we are with him in heaven. If you're not regularly in this habit of, of meditating upon what God has promised, then I want you to see the importance of a contemplative focus on heaven and the impact that it will have on your daily Christian walk. Now, the worksheet has three questions and some verses that I'll refer to in the sermon and that are in the article, but it's not an exhaustive list, of course, and it's just to get you started contemplating this glorious future and to hopefully find blissful joy that God has intended for you. And I am confident that the Holy Spirit led me to these same conclusions in my own thinking on these things as those that are expressed in Dr. Storm's article. Therefore... The following I present as the testimony of two witnesses. So, let's begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Because that is where Dr. Storm starts his article. He says that uh, we don't often recognize that this, is a pa- that this particular passage is a description of heaven. And he's right. I hadn't at first realized it. But let's read it and figure out why he says that. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So why exactly is this a description of heaven? Well, look at the phrase in verse 10, when the perfect comes. These verses focus our attention upon a future reality, a perfection that is not yet present. And this anticipation of what is to come, the perfection of love in heaven and all that that implies, is what Paul is pointing the Corinthian church toward 
as a guide for how we are to live our Christian walk and fulfill our roles in relationship with one another within the body of Christ. Remember back in chapter 13, just before the, or I'm sorry, chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, just before this, Paul is explaining to them the purpose of spiritual gifts, that the gifts are given to, to us for the common good and that they are given to each individual as the Spirit wills. But the church in Corinth had begun in their self-centeredness to squabble amongst one another and to one-up each other over this question of spiritual gifts. Paul corrects them. And he says that they're, and after correcting them and their understanding of what spiritual gifts are, he said that there is actually a more excellent way. Even more desirable than spiritual gifts is to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Paul points to the future perfection that will be, first of all, dominated by love. It will be eternal, unending, unmediated intimacy with God. It will be full knowledge of God. And it can be summed up in the word perfection. Now clearly this future perfection describes heaven. That time when we will see, touch, taste, smell, hear the reality of God's presence and intimacy. And we no longer need to walk by faith. We no long, and, and we will have received all that we hope for. In heaven, faith and hope will no longer be necessary. What then awaits us in heaven when the perfect comes, as Paul says? Well, we enter into the presence of God face to face. Elsewhere in Paul's writing, he says that by looking intently at what is to come, we find our primary hope for joy. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Paul says our daily renewal is accomplished by looking to the eternal things that are unseen. In Colossians 3, 1-4, Paul says to seek things that are above, where Christ is, set our minds on heaven, not on the things that are on earth. Cultivate and intensify your soul's ache for heaven and its beauty now, and make it the focus of your contemplative energy now, and you will experience joy now in your present circumstance. This is why Scripture consistently exhorts us to focus our hearts on and minds upon the things that are above. It is not a practice in theological speculation. Focusing on heaven will bring encouragement and renewal and joy in your daily life. Because the, anticip the anticipation of heaven and all that we will experience there is, in fact, life-changing. Now, you may have heard the term beatific vision. The word beatific is from the Latin word beatificus, and it means, simply means to make happy. It is the same root word that gives us the beatitudes from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Remember where Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart? For they shall see God. Won't seeing God, seeing Him, make you happy? Now, in Christian theology, beatific means more precisely giving of blissful enjoyment, exalted joy, or blessedness. It is happiness to the nth degree. And when we say beatific vision, we are speaking of the direct sight of God enjoyed by the blessed in heaven. We shall see him face to face. 
This, this should be and is our deepest hope and desire as Christians to have intimate fellowship with our Creator. Dr. Storms expresses it this way, The essence of heaven is the vision or the beholding of God, the eternal expansion of our knowledge of God, and the ever-increasing love, joy, and delight that we will experience in God and in one another. Now we're going to come back to this statement uh, later on, but for now, let's examine four ways that the focus on heaven will have an immediate impact upon our lives. First, it frees, it frees us from excessive dependence upon earthly wealth and comfort. Now, why is this? It's because our citizenship is in heaven. In Philippians 3.20, Paul tells the Philippians, who were Roman citizens, by the way, and they, they had all the attendant rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. He, Paul tells them that their fundamental identity the orientation of their souls, the affections of their hearts, and the focus of their minds is to be in heaven. He makes an appeal to their patriotic pride, not in Rome, not in Philippi, but to the new Jerusalem, that they should be governed by its rules, its principles, its values. Peter also writes to the church, and directing our minds away from worldly things and toward heaven. He tells us that God caused, caused all of us to be born again to experience a heavenly hope, an imperishable inheritance. Later on in 1 Peter 1, he exhorts us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 says how they persevered, strangers and exiles in a foreign land, with the expectation of a city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. It is a better country, a heavenly one. Hebrews 11 is full of examples of saints who placed their faith in God for the fulfillment of his promise of eternal union with him and dwelt as strangers and exiles on the earth. Second, our contemplative focus on heaven allows us to respond appropriately to the injustices of this life. We live every day told about the injustices that occur in the world, experiencing the, the injustices, seeing injustices happen on this, this world. But we know that God will judge every deed. Part of our heavenly joy will include the vindication and, of righteousness and the judgment of evil. Apart from ha having this eternal heavenly perspective, how are, we, how are we to deal with the struggle? Having to endure the ugliness and the moral deformity that is all around us. But we can reconcile the injustices of this life because we know that at Christ's return we will see him sitting upon the throne of David and that of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. We will see him establish his kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness 
forevermore. Third, having our minds set on the perfection to come produces the fruit of endurance and perseverance. Where is it that we find strength to endure this present suffering? It comes as the fruit of meditating upon future satisfaction, as numerous passages tell us. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Paul tells us to compare our earthly adversity with heavenly glory. Look at how he uses contrasting phrases. Light momentary affliction versus eternal weight of glory. And the things that are seen are transient versus the things that are unseen are eternal. The suffering of this world causes our outer selves to waste away. But focusing on the eternal glory to come renews our inner selves day by day. And fourth, having a mind set upon the things of heaven exerts a purifying power on your heart. A meditation on the glories of heaven energizes the heart to say no to fleshly desires. We have died to this world and our life is with Christ in God. We are right now God's children. This hope purifies us. As we see this world that is passing away, we await the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells according to his promise. What then sort of lives of holiness and godliness should we be living as we wait? Multiple times in the New Testament, we are exhorted to focus our thoughts heavenward upon Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, both for our holiness and purity as well as encouragement in our lives as resident aliens in the world. Is it not imperative then that we have a proper understanding of what our thoughts of heaven should be? So what is heaven's essence? What is a truthful understanding of heaven? What should we contemplate to receive the benefits of heavenly meditation? Let's take a look again at Dr. Sorm's description of the nature of heaven. The essence of heaven is the vision or beholding of God, the eternal expansion of our knowledge of God, and the ever-increasing love, joy, and delight that we will experience in God and in one another. As I have contemplated heaven over the past few years, the term I have come up with is ever-increasing perfection. As a phrase, it encapsulates my understanding of what heaven will be like. And it was actually a, a web search of this phrase that led me to Sam Storm's website and this particular article. The first and primary and underlying truth, one that's also present within the article, that led me to consider the magnitude of ever-increasing perfection is God's attribute of being infinite. In Psalms 145.3, we read, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. <clears throat> Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. In Isaiah 9.7, we read, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
in First First Kings eight twenty seven. King Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell in, on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. God is infinite, without boundaries, ends, or limits. He is without beginning or end. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. The contemplation of the infinite nature of God, that all of his attributes are infinite, I find to be nothing less than mind-blowing. Another truth, really a correction of my own understanding, was the true meaning of the word perfection. Because I can say that heaven will be perfect, but what does that mean? I used to understand perfect to mean free from defect, but also complete. And this concept of completeness, it turns out, is what led me to have a rather dull view of heaven. If heaven is perfect and complete, then the natural assumption, at least for me, is that it would be static. And contemplating static perfection is not very exciting, nor motivating, nor particularly helpful. Even if we picture it in contrast to life in this world, life now is full of trouble and suffering and misery, but at least it's eventful. Stuff happens. Life happens. If heaven were perfect in the completed sense, the picture I got in my mind was one grand flash of excitement followed by an eternity of boredom. I mean, just think of the the usual depictions that you see of heaven in popular culture, in movies, or even on Hallmark cards. It's beautiful, sure, but colorless and void. It is vital to the to our understanding that while it is true that the word perfect does mean complete in a certain sense, the words are not synonymous, nor does heaven's perfection or yours, for that matter, matter, mean that it will ever be completely complete. And why is this? It's because God is infinite in his attributes and his being and his nature while you and I are not. So God is infinite, heaven is perfect, I am finite. This formula is the basis of God's, uh, I'm sorry, of heaven's irresistible appeal. It's also the appeal of God's, you know, irresistible appeal. But it speaks directly to why heaven is so irresistibly appealing. It is the magnificence of the reward for our faith in Christ. And it is how it can begin, even now, our ever-increasing eternal enjoyment of God for His glory. I want you to understand how beatific was this realization for me, knowing that when perfection comes, my knowledge of of God, my, my enjoyment of Him, my love for Him, will always and forever be on the increase. Heaven is not just the reality and experience of knowledge, joy, and love, but it is the eternal increase of them. I mean, get this point. This is the crux of it for me, really, personally, and I want it to be for you, too. The blessedness of heaven is 
is that its beauty is progressive. It is advancing moment by moment, and it is eternally expansive. Now, if this idea sounds strange to you, and it might, let me just ask you this one question and think really hard about it. When do you think you will ever have a comprehensive knowledge of the infinite God? You see, it is our finiteness that will allow us to forever delight in the wonder and glory of God. It is what will forever drive us to shout His praises without ever once repeating ourselves. This is what brought me to the conclusion that heaven is ever-increasing perfection, even though, at first, it seems like a contradiction. But it's true. Heaven will be perfect the moment we are there, and then the next moment, it will be even more perfect. And moment by moment, moment after moment, that will go on for all eternity. So I'd like to take some time right now and exert our contemplative energies on the perfection to come in light of this beatific vision of our glorious triune God who is infinite in all of his attributes without beginning or end, from everlasting to everlasting, without limits or bounds. How will we, finite creatures that we are, experience that? I'll share some of my thoughts with you from my own meditation on heaven and the beatific vision of being face-to-face with God. And I will start with God's immeasurable grace. In Ephesians 2, 7, we see what God will be doing in heaven. God God raised us up with Christ so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is saving lost souls so that he can, for all eternity, display the infinite riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This will be ongoing throughout the coming ages, an everlasting, ever-increasing impartation of his divine kindness, intensifying with every passing moment. Will we ever fully grasp the riches of God's grace toward us? Will we not experience new revelations of divine grace every day? Will we not be recipients of unmerited favor with each passing moment in his presence, beholding him face to face? In heaven, the immeasurable riches of God's grace will be displayed, It is grace that can't be quantified. It exceeds all calculation. It is infinitely deep, infinitely wide, and infinitely high. God's grace and kindness to us in Jesus will never end or diminish. When we reach the end, when will we reach the end in discovering God's saving love? How will we comprehend the new manifestations of kindness that he will shower on us with each passing day. Will God's grace towards us ever end? Will we not receive ever-increasing grace forever? And we will see ever-new and fresh displays of God's saving love for us. Each new revelation of His grace will expand our ever-increasing knowledge of God.
Consider the angels who exist in perfection and sinlessness. In Luke 15, it says that they increase in knowledge and joy over the repentance of each sinner. So if angels can experience growth of insight and find new grounds for joy, why would it not be the same for us? Each one of us had a beginning. Each one of us will always be finite. There will never be a time when any of us will know everything there is to know or have experienced everything there is to experience. God is infinite. He is without beginning or end. You may plumb the depths of him and wander the expanse of him and never come to the end of him. There will always be some new, heretofore unknown discovery of the wonders and glories of God. And consider this also. Because you will be perfect in heaven, you will never forget anything that you have learned. Your knowledge and amazement of God will therefore forever be on the increase. With our growing knowledge and understanding of our gracious Lord will come ever-increasing intensified love. The more we understand the intensity of our infinite God's love for us, the deeper we will be fascinated and affectionate towards him. As we are filled with ever-increasing knowledge, joy, and love, the more like Christ we will become. And the more like Christ we become, the greater will be our desire to worship him and become even more like him. The more we desire him, the more we will receive. We will have an ever-increasing capacity to give ever-increasing glory to God. God created us for his glory, as we are told in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. But if God's glory is infinite, how can his finite creatures glorify him enough? I believe that God will give us ever-increasing capacities of intellect, of sensitivity, of perception, and that these will expand in ways that we are incapable of imagining. This means that there will be growth in heaven. In heaven, my love will be free of corruption and selfishness. It will be a perfect love, but will it be as intense as possible? To say that my love for God is absolutely perfect and cannot be improved upon implies that I know everything that can be known about him and that I know it in exhausting detail. I will have knowledge of God. That knowledge will be perfect and free from error. That is not to say that it will ever be comprehensive. Even in heaven, only God will be immutable and unchanging, while we will ever be subject to greater transformation and improvement. And this makes perfect sense. In heaven, we will be perfect the the moment we are there, but that is not to say that we will be perfectly perfect We will be perfect because we will be free from sin, free from corruption, and free from self-centeredness. But our perfection will be finite because we are finite. Our perfection can always grow and expand. We will be perfectly happy in that we will be entirely free from trouble and trial and evil. But that perfection, as strange as it may sound, is always subject to improvement. Perfection in heaven 
will always be by degrees because it will always be finite. And that is because we will always be finite. We will always have limits. But the delight of heaven is that it is the eternal expansion of those limits. It is an eternal life of experiencing newfound glories of God. And this growth, this ever-increasing growth, it begins now. Our growth now only continues to increase in heaven. What we do right now will count for our lives in heaven. We know we already have an eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't get a new eternal life when we get to heaven. We continue this one. That means that we can get a good start on our life in heaven even now. Our growth in Christ-likeness here on earth will continue for all eternity. God has given us already His Word. We already have His Holy Spirit to guide, teach, encourage, reveal, convict, and strengthen us and transform us into the image of Christ. We won't lose any of that when we get to heaven. But there's nothing to say that what we fail to gain of Him will instantly be provided to us when we do get to heaven. We should not think that everyone will enter heaven being equally knowledgeable, equally holy, equally ready to enjoy the wonders of God. The more you come to know Him now will carry over in your heavenly state. Scripture doesn't say that all of us will instantaneously, equally and exhaustively be educated at our entrance into heaven. Quite the opposite, if you think about it, we're told of differing rewards in various, for various of the saints. We know of special thrones, of crowns, special seats of honor that will be given to apostles, prophets, martyrs, and those for whom they have been set aside. Perhaps it strikes you as improper, though, to point out that there will be inequities in heaven. But people will be at differing levels of holiness, love, and joy in heaven. Even so, heaven will be a place of ever-increasing satisfaction. Now, we might struggle to grasp this in our current state of envy, covetousness, self-centeredness, but remember, everyone will be perfect in heaven, and so none of those sinful attitudes will exist. Or perhaps you might be concerned that you will about never attaining your full potential. Well, despite never reaching your full potential, consummating your perfection, or completing your knowledge, there will be no feelings of frustration, disappointment, or anxiety, or despair. Those are, after all, feelings of not attaining what your heart yearns for. In heaven, whatever your heart desires will be granted, for your heart will only desire what is good and holy and pleasing to God and giving Him full honor and glory. Here, now, God limits our happiness, but He does so so that we do not become dependent upon this world and fearful of leaving it, fearful of dying, he wants us to be yearning for the perfection that is yet to come. In heaven, every desire will be met with a corresponding satisfaction. Our enjoyment of God 
will spark new inquiries into his person, which he will reveal to us in new ways, and that will stir our hearts to greater fascination and wonder of his remaining mysteries. We will exist in ever-increasing happiness, knowing that we will ever only begun to taste the sweetness of God. Each new idea and thought and insight will open up new perceptions of beauty and delight, leaping past the limits and boundaries of what we perceive as beautiful now. Heavenly beauty will also be infinite. A new heaven and a new earth will have new colors, shades, hues, combinations, radiances. It will have new sounds and harmonies, loudnesses and quietnesses, melodies and vibrancies. It will have new smells, new tastes, new sensations. Who knows what new faculties of mind, soul, and spirit God will give us to enjoy the infinite splendors of his new creation. And if it turns out that others are more advanced in their ever-increasing perceptions of heavenly beauty and happier than we are, that itself will only serve to make us happier to see their happiness. And that brings me to the final and last implication that I'm going to share with you today. And that is our ever-increasing intimacy with one another. When the perfect comes upon first meeting someone new, you will experience a deep, intimate, loving relationship with that other person beyond any relationship you've ever had this side of heaven. Relationships in heaven will be deeper than your relationship with your spouse, your brother, your sister, your best friend, even if they're a BFF. Even your relationship with your beloved mother. In heaven, we will rejoice in one another's happiness and joy and delight, free from sin, free from envy, free of covetousness, free of spite. And no one will be irritating in any way. We will have forgotten what irritation even is. Heaven will be dominated by love. First will be our ever-increasing love and intimacy with God who will draw us ever deeper into himself for all eternity. This will be the heart of each one of us. But second will be our ever-increasing love and intimacy with each other because we will have the same heart, the same desire, the same delight in God's glory. We will all be of one mind, the mind of Christ. In church, in this life, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, we get the merest taste of this intimacy. In heaven, all barriers will be removed, and my perfected, glorified self will be free to love and rejoice in the happiness of all the other perfected and glorified selves. This thought of our intimacy with one another in heaven first occurred to me several years ago when I was writing a letter to a friend who had walked away from the faith. He had written to apologize for not attending my son Hayden's memorial service. He was deeply sorry, and he even mentioned that he would probably end up friendless himself. I wrote him back to assure him that I was, I was saddened by his absence from the service, but I remained his friend, and I accepted wholeheartedly his apology. And I wrote this. 
I have known you a long time, and I care about you and love you. And at one time, I considered you a brother in Christ. That meant that whatever our failings and personality faults currently besetting us, one day you and I would enjoy eternity together, perfected and bound by an intimacy unfathomable to us here. Now, I can't explain exactly what led me to write that sentence. Even as I wrote it, it struck me as a novel concept, this heavenly, unfathomable intimacy between people. It, you know, wasn't like I set out to write the letter and to include that. The thought hadn't even uh, occurred to me before that moment that I know of. It just seemed to fit in writing back to him. It was a new thought to me. But it's one that I have held on to and embraced and thought upon ever since. In fact, it is part of the genesis of my meditative journey of what heaven would truly be like. As I mentioned, I wrote this letter shortly after Hayden's passing in April 2017. I was beginning to give a lot of thought towards heaven. I have been raised in the church and in the Christian faith. I have been a believer from a very young age. I have always had the hope of heaven. But I can't necessarily say that it had been a source of excitement, anticipation, or joy in my life until I began to seriously meditate upon its realities, the mysteries it holds out for us. When I would think of heaven in the past, often I would picture immobility and passivity. Peaceful, tranquil, beautiful, but stationary, unchanging. It seems blasphemous, blasphemous to me now, but the best word to describe my prior thoughts of heaven is stagnation. But none of those mental pictures were remotely biblical. Imagining where Hayden is right now, I begin to picture as best I can what God has prepared for those who love him. You know what's amazing about this? 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us the heart of man cannot even imagine what God has prepared for us. The following verses go on to tell us that such things are only revealed by the Holy Spirit who guides us in interpreting these spiritual truths. We have been given the mind of Christ and we should set our minds upon the things above where Christ is, not on the things that are on earth. Scripture gives us numerous glimpses of our heavenly home, but they are only glimpses. Often the descriptions are mind-boggling. We can't conceive what is being described, especially when it comes to the description of heavenly beings. So if language fails to even convey the fantastic appearance of these beings, these places, these objects, why in our imaginings of heaven do we picture a place so placid and boring? To me, 1 Corinthians 2.9 gives me liberty to imagine heaven in the most amazing and awesome manner my tiny, little, finite brain can possibly muster. And then I can rejoice that I haven't even come close to its wonder and magnificence. The world we live in is passing away. I see its corruption and rebellion and wickedness every day. I live with my own sinfulness, my own selfishness, my own recognition of my shortcomings in loving God with my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
The world is decaying and under judgment, and it will be judged for the sins of all mankind. Jesus saved me from that judgment. But I am not just saved from judgment. I am saved to everlasting, ever-increasing life with Christ in his eternal kingdom, heaven. My exhortation to you is to think about this glorious destiny we will all share. Let it drive you deeper in the knowledge of our infinite God, deeper into love with him. Let it motivate your actions and service to one another. Let it compel you to share the gospel message to those who do not know that they too may share this wondrous hope. Let this hope strengthen you and let it to let go of the corruption of this world and to cling to Christ. Let it give you the strength to endure and rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we rejoice that you have made such a wonderful destiny for us, that you have brought us to yourself to share the glories of your infinite nature, that you desire, Lord, to be glorified forever in our ceaseless wonder and praise of you. I pray, Lord, that you will encourage our hearts to constantly look to where you are, to where you are leading us, to where you have taken us. We praise you, Lord, because of your tender mercy, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace, and to lead us into your perfection, ever-increasing forever. Amen.